Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. This morning, we are continuing the sermon series that we began a number of weeks ago, the sermon series called Who's On First? Knowing God by Name. And through this series, we are asking the question, who is this God we approach in worship? Who is this God we approach in prayer? What's He like? What's His nature? What's His character? What can we expect from Him and, in return, what is expected of us? And so each week through the series, we're looking at a different name or a different title that we see in the scriptures that God has given us, that he's revealed himself. And so over the last weeks, we've looked at Yahweh or Jehovah, also in English, I am, looked at the Lord, looked at God Almighty, and last week, Pastor Christian shared with us about the God of peace. And so if you've missed any of those, I'd encourage you, you can go back and get caught up on any of those through our podcast or through our YouTube channel. And also each week, we have here our Who's On First trading card. And so did you get yours on the way in? I hope so. And if you've missed any of our past weeks, we do have some extras in the Welcome Center. And so you can fill in your collection because I know that's really the the biggest and most forefront thing on your mind this summer is making sure you have the whole set. So this morning, as we move into our message, I want to share with you a drawing uh, that is originally from the 19th century. And so you can actually see on the screen, we have a drawing that is here. And and what do you see? What was that? Yeah, a frog. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, that's what I see very clearly. Now, can you see the horse? Could you see it before it was turned? See, I couldn't see it at all until I turned the picture, or at least turned my head. But now that it's turned, I can see the horse so clearly. And so let's go to the next slide, and you can see them. It's the same drawing, just turned. See, it's all about perspective, isn't it? Perspective can change everything. People can look at the same exact situation or the same picture, and come to drastically different conclusions depending on their perspective. Perspective influences our attitudes. It influences our feelings. Perspectives ultimately influence how we are going to act and how we will live. And so the story we're going to look at today, I want you to think about the perspectives of the people in the story. It's a familiar story. And so I want to challenge you not just to hear it from the the same perspective you're used to, but try to hear it from the perspective of the people within it to understand how does their perspective influence the way they act. And also, I encourage you to look for, find the perspective that reveals the name of God that we're going to look at today. And so we're going to jump into 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I encourage you, if you'd like, you can follow along on the screens, or you can just listen as God's Word speaks into our hearts, into our lives this morning. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. 
Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, how do, you, how, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this, this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands." As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. 
So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into his word together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, even your familiar word that can speak in new ways into our lives, and that's what we ask for this morning, that your spirit would take the words of my mouth, the thoughts, considerations of our hearts, and use them to shape us from the inside out, that we can trust you, that we can know you more fully. It's in the name of Jesus that we trust and we pray. Amen. So you probably saw the perspective, saw the name of God that we're going to look at today. And if you didn't see it in the passage, you probably saw it on the card on your way in. It's okay. We gave you the answers up front. It's an open book test. No problem. So it's, it's the Lord of hosts. David is proclaiming that God is the Lord of hosts, but he was able to proclaim that because of his perspective in the story. And so as we look at this passage, it opens with the battle lines drawn, armies on either side of the small valley. And they're engaged in a common to its day, but a funky form of battle to us, where they would, each army would send out a champion. And they, the two of them alone would fight, and if the, whichever champion won, that whole army was declared the victor. The army that lost, or the champion that lost, that whole army was then made the servants of the other. And so every day, the Philistine champion, Goliath, would come out. Now, Goliath, we know from elsewhere earlier in this chapter before what we read, is nine and a half feet tall. I mean, okay, I'm six foot one, and I can reach to roughly eight feet high, so I'd I'd need to stand on a chair and reach as high as I can to get to roughly the top of Goliath's head. I mean, he's about as tall as a regulation basketball hoop, but probably not a beanpole like a basketball hoop. I mean, he was massive. He had this incredible, huge, and amazingly heavy suit of armor. He had this giant spear in his hand. If he's nine and a half feet tall, he's probably got hands like this, so the spear is probably that big around. I mean, this is an imposing and intimidating champion. And for 40 days, every morning and every evening, Goliath would come out and he would taunt the armies of Israel. Come on! Fight me. Don't you have a man that's courageous enough to come out and challenge me? Let's, let's go. He would defy the armies of Israel because he had the perspective. Goliath's perspective was that might is right. You ever heard that, that phrase? Might is right. In other words, if you have the might, then everything you do is right because you win. And you get to write history, and you get to write it in a way that says that what you did was absolutely right. And Goliath's perspective is, I have the, str- the size, I have the strength, I have the power, I've got the training, I've got the pedigree. No one could possibly defeat me. When I was growing up, I, I played football as a boy. And for many years, I was forced to play on the offensive line because there were weight limits for those who were in the backfield. And I just weighed far too much to play in the backfield. 
And some of that is genetic. It ran in my family. And so we had a phrase uh, that we used kind of as a motto in our family, and that phrase was bulk rules. In other words, you could throw around your bulk a little bit, and you got to, to rule. This is the perspective that Goliath has in this situation, but it's also the perspective that the armies of Israel have. Because we're told whenever the Israelites saw Goliath come out, they fled from him in great fear. See, because they see the same situation with the same perspective, they just have different reactions. Because they see his size, his strength, his stature, they see that he is confident and defiant and they are cowering and afraid. But both Goliath And the armies of Israel are assessing the situation based on what their eyes can see, their minds can understand what makes sense in light of what's in front of them. And what the armies of Israel see is something that is totally insurmountable, undefeatable. I mean, they see a giant. I mean, I think this happens to us. I mean, I I I haven't run into any giants nine and a half feet tall. But I think we face situations in our lives that seem just as insurmountable, that seem impossible, situations that are bigger than we are because we look at those situations from our perspective, from what we see, from what we understand, from what is possible for us, and what it feels like sometimes is that there's not a whole lot possible for me. And so I wonder, what do your giants look like? What are those spots in your life that seem insurmountable? That you're just thinking, you know what, there's no way that I am going to get through this, that I'm going to overcome this. So the armies of Israel and Goliath are looking at the situation with the same perspective, with different reactions, but David's perspective on the whole thing is completely different. Because here's David, he shows up on the battlefield because his father, Jesse, told him to go deliver some bread and some grain and some cheese to his brothers and see how things are going. So David shows up, he drops off the supplies, and he runs off to the battle lines to find his brothers. And as he's talking to them, Goliath comes out with his usual taunt and defiance. And David is there this time to hear it. And he's wondering, what's going on? What are you all doing? I mean, who, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? And see, now that's where the perspective switch is seen most clearly. Because up until this point in the story, even before what we read, up until this point, everyone has been talking about the armies of Israel. It's their battle. It's Israel's problem to figure out. It's their enemy that they have to fight. Their war, they've got to figure out how to win it. But when David looks at the exact same situation, the same players on the same field of battle, he has a totally different perspective. He says, no, this isn't about the armies of Israel. This is about the armies of the living God. See, this was the first time in the whole story that God is even mentioned. And it's on the lips of David because he has a totally different perspective. See, David David sees this situation with a question that he carries with him throughout his entire life. David carries this question, where is God in this situation? He's always carrying that question. Where is God here? And I wonder, is that a question that you live with day in and day out? Are you asking constantly and whatever you're facing, where, where is God here? 
What is he doing? What is he up to? Because that perspective can make all the difference in the world. And David is looking at this situation, and he's going, Goliath is not coming out and embarrassing the armies of Israel. No, he's coming out and defying God himself. He's calling God out as if God is weak, as if God is his enemy, as if God is the one who is lesser than him. And David, on the other hand, is remembering that they are God's chosen people. They are God's army. And any attack on them is an attack on God himself. And God won't stand for it. It's such a totally drastically different perspective that actually people in the camp start talking you know chatter spreads and eventually the word reaches King Saul and Saul figures you know what I got to talk to this guy and so he sends for David and David comes and tells the king hey don't worry don't worry David volunteers his tribute says I'll go I'll fight him no problem and Saul looks at David with that same perspective that everybody else has he sizes him up. He says, I don't know, you, could, you can't do that. You're just a young, scrawny boy. He's a giant. And he's been a warrior since he was young. And David's like, yeah, no big deal. And, and, I, and trying to put the king's mind and his heart at ease a little bit, he tells him about his, his growing up and his work as the shepherd of his father's sheep. He says, I spent a lot of time in the wilderness, and from time to time, lions and bears would come, and they'd try to attack the sheep, and so I'd have to defend the sheep, and really, when it really came to it, if, if it required it, I wouldn't just fight them off. I'd even kill those lions and bears. But he went on, and he says, you know what? And it, you know what? It's not actually even me who's killing those animals. It's not me defending the sheep. He says, it's the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And this same God who has given me the strength and the power to overcome them is going to give me the strength and the power to overcome this Philistine giant. See, Paul, David's holding on to this perspective that it's not about my strength. It's not about my physical prowess. Even as he's looking back, he's keeping that same perspective Telling, it, telling them that, yeah, okay, it was at, actually my hands that did the, the fighting and killed those animals, but it wasn't me. It was the strength that God has given me working through me. God was the warrior. God was the rescuer. God was the one who delivered me from those beasts. And that same God is going to deliver me from this giant. Now, maybe it's David's confidence. Maybe it's his faith. In the living God and the reminder to Saul that the living God is, has, in fact, worked and been among them for generations. But something inspires Saul, and Saul finally lets David go to fight Goliath. I mean, after he decides to, to try to put his armor on him, because he's still looking at the situation from that human perspective, from what he can see and understand. And he says, you know, I, I can't see how this can go any way but badly, so here, at least try to put on this armor and take this sword and this helmet. We'll see what happens. And David humors him. He tries, but it doesn't really fit. And God has something different in mind anyway. Something that was going to show the complete and utter opposites between Goliath and David. And so David goes out to fight Goliath in the valley. And it's two men with two perspectives that collide in this one place. And Goliath comes out and looks at David up and down, sneering at him, and is like, you guys kidding me? 
Is this a joke? What am I, a dog that you're sending me? You're going to fight me with this stick of a guy? This is ridiculous. I'm going to feed him to the birds. Goliath maintaining his perspective, but David maintaining his confidence and his perspective says back to Goliath, yeah, you come to me with swords and spears and javelins. In other words, you're coming at me with all of the tools of human strength, all of the things that are of human power, of human understanding, all of those things that make sense to you and that give you a confidence that you're somehow going to have the victory in this situation, but I am coming at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, the one whom you have defied. Man, I think so often we rely on primarily earthly strength, the power and the tools that we can come up with that we understand. And David is reminding us, no, that true strength, true power, the real victory, the real rescue will come when the Lord of hosts shows up in our lives. The Lord of hosts. In Hebrew, this is Yahweh Sabaoth. And Host is not about, you know, the folks that greet you at the restaurant before you go sit down. Host is about armies. Because on one hand, God is in fact the commander of the army of Israel. As we see in this passage today, when he says go, they go. When he says stop, they stop. When he says fight, they fight. And when they fight, he fights. And so they win because he will guarantee the victory. He's the commander of the army of Israel. But he's also the Lord of hosts, as in the heavenly hosts, as in angel armies. Did you know that there are angel armies? The Bible is consistent, Old and New Testament, all the way to the end times when the angel armies of the Lord will battle the forces of evil. We get glimpses of it throughout the Scripture. We get a glimpse of it at Christmas, at the birth of Jesus We're told, yes, it was an angel choir, but that's the heavenly host that are singing above the shepherds, announcing and proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah, the warrior king. We see it in the book of Daniel, when Daniel is praying and praying, and eventually the archangel Michael shows up and says, Daniel, the moment you started praying, your prayers were heard, and I was deployed to come to you, but I've been detained until this moment because there has been a force working against me that I have been fighting and fighting until this very day. The angels, the angel armies are fighting spiritual battles. And the Lord of hosts is the commander of angel armies. See, the Lord of hosts, God is a warrior God. And I know in our modern day, we can get a little uncomfortable with this. Well, actually, some people get way too comfortable with it. And they, they just want to fight and tear down everyone and everything. And I don't think that's quite right. I think others of us get uncomfortable with the idea that God would be a warrior God. And in many ways, it is hard for us to understand because we read through the Bible and we don't really understand all the bloodshed. We don't really get it. And, And yet, as we look at it, as we see it, we can see that God throughout history has been on the move as a warrior God protecting his people, right, keeping his promises and defending against all of the enemies who would defy him and defy his will, he's the warrior God. And so when we have enemies, 
when we face the giants in our lives, we can have confidence that God is the Lord of hosts, that he is the one who will fight, who will rescue, who will save, who is victorious, that there is no enemy that can triumph over him. And this this story illustrates it so well, so clearly. As David goes out with his five smooth stones, his little sling, and flings that rock up at the giant's forehead. And miraculously, the stone sinks into his forehead, drops the giant dead in his place. And the Philistine army runs because the enemy has been conquered. The Lord of hosts, the warrior God, the commander of the armies of Israel and of angel armies, the rescuer, the savior, gives the victory. Now, as we consider this story and this title of God, how can we really apply it to our lives today? Because this is kind of hard, but I think it all comes down to perspective. We've got to hold on to two particular perspectives. The first is just the perspective of who God is, the reminder that God is, in fact, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, that the one Jesus himself, when he was betrayed in the garden, told them very clearly, if I want to, I can call down legions of angels, and we can take care of this problem in this moment. And so when you're facing those situations in your lives, just know that at any time, God can, in fact, if he so chooses, call down angel armies to intervene in your life, to protect you, to provide for you, to defend you, to carry out the will of God in your life. And so when you face those giants, it's to remember who, who God is, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. I think the, the other perspective that we've got to hold on to is that we are, in fact, in a battle, that it's happening right now, that we are in a fight. It's not the same as we've read in this story. This story exists partially to point ahead to our day. Because we're not fighting human armies. That's not who our real enemies are. We're not fighting human armies because we're not the chosen kingdom of Israel, the chosen people to be a physical light of the world to the nations on earth. We live on this side of Jesus' coming. And so, what do we do with this? We are still in a battle. Paul actually helps us understand what do we do with this story in our day on this side of Jesus from our first reading of today from Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says that we are not in a battle against flesh and blood. We are not, let me say it again, we are not in a battle against flesh and blood. In other words, we're not in a battle against other people, and yet why do we seem to always make other people the enemy? Why in America are we at each other's throats all the time? We are not fighting the right enemy. Paul instead says our battle is not against flesh and blood, not against other people, but it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's where the battle is. We're in a real fight, but I think the problem is we forget who the enemy is, and it's not one another, but it's hard. Because we get frustrated. 
We get angry about things that happen to us or happen to those that we care about. We get frustrated about the decisions that those people out there are making on behalf of the rest of us. We get hurt because of what people do to us or to one another. And so we easily turn our attention to one another and forget who the real enemy is. After about uh, 12 years or so, this summer I have joined a basketball team. So I'm out playing again a couple days a week, and every day I am reminded of how less young my body is than it was when I played 12 years ago. And this last Monday, we were, we were in the game, and there was about two minutes left in the game, and we were up by a handful of points. And I'm on defense, and I go up, and I block a shot, clean, but I was called for a foul. And so they got two free throws right there, but on the second free throw, he missed the shot. A guy on their team got the rebound. I go up, and I block that shot clean, got called for another foul, two bogus calls within five seconds. In my frustration, I took the basketball, slammed it on the floor in front of me. It went flying up in the air, and I was called for the first technical foul of my entire life. (laughs) Not only that, That technical foul was my fifth foul. I fouled out of the game. We only had five players playing. And so there were only four players on my team left in the game, five on theirs. We lost in overtime. If I had stayed in the game, we probably win easily. Probably handled no problem. See, I forgot who the real enemy was. The real enemy wasn't the ref. The real enemy was the other team. And actually, that's not even quite true. Because in the big picture of my life, I forgot that the real enemy wasn't even the other team. That the battle is not against other people, even in sports. That the battle is for my soul. See, that's the battle that really matters. Every moment the one that is happening in the spiritual realm. The battle is against those forces that are at work against us. The force in the scripture that's known as the world. The world is not just the people who live in the world. That's not fair. We're to love those people because God loves those people. When the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about, here's a good definition, that which makes sin look normal. The world is a force that's trying to normalize sin, and is that not happening every single day? If we normalize sin, then it doesn't matter what we do. And so we normalize, and the world is normalizing and normalizing, and there's so much pressure. There's the battle. Because those forces want sin to be normal and we to be okay with it. The battle's against the flesh. Those parts of me where sin keeps rising up, the parts of me that are not surrendered to Jesus, the parts of me that lash out in anger in the midst of a basketball game or in the midst of a conversation with my family or with those people who are close to you. It's those parts of us that are still not surrendered and available to Jesus. That's where the battle lives, inside here. The battle is with the devil over and over again throughout the Scripture. And the devil may not be attacking us with pitchforks and little red horns, but the devil is, in fact, absolutely trying to seduce you and tempt you to forget your identity in Christ, to forget the reason why Christ purchased you at the cost of his own blood so that you could represent him in the world and proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ. 
to be a witness in the world. You know how many people talk to me this week about my technical foul who weren't even at the game? And I can tell you, I'm embarrassed because the witness to Christ. Because that's where the battle lives. John White was a speaker and an author, and he wrote a book called The Fight. And he says this. He says, war is not something that illustrates aspects of Christian living. Christian living is war. Indeed, I would go further. Earthly warfare is not the real warfare. It is but a faint, ugly reflection of the real thing. It is into the real war that the Christian is to plunge. Wars on earth are but tremors felt from an earthquake light years away. The Christian's war takes place at the epicenter of the earthquake. It is infinitely more deadly. While the issues that hang on it make earth's most momentous questions no more than village gossip. See, as a follower of Jesus, we have been plunged into a war that so many people don't even know is happening. A war that is for our souls, yours and mine, and for the souls of our neighbors who are walking, lost, living in darkness, apart from a relationship with God. And it is a war that is infinitely more deadly, where that final enemy beyond the world and the flesh and the devil is death itself, eternal death, separation from God eternally. These are the giants. These are the real enemies that we face. And who will rescue us from these bodies of death? The Lord of hosts, that's who. The God of angel armies, the God of the armies of Israel, the warrior God, the rescuer and savior, the one who is victorious and can overcome. The one who sent another young man to rescue his people, to be the champion of his people, that young man who would grow, and then that young man, Jesus, who would face the enemies on our behalf as our champion, the one who would not defeat those enemies in triumph with a stone in a sling, but would instead take the enemies of the world, the flesh, the devil, upon his body and crucify those enemies on the cross so that they no longer could have victory over you and me. And that in his resurrection, he would rise victorious over all of them and over death itself that we no longer even have to fear that enemy. Friends, we are we're in a fight. Will we hang on to the perspective of where the fight really is? The stakes that are infinitely higher than the battles that play out between us? Will we maintain the perspective of what the real enemies are and will we hold on to the question, Lord of hosts, where are you in this situation? Warrior God, rescue us, deliver us, save us, Bring us the victory in Jesus Christ and in his name alone. Let's maintain those perspectives. Let's pray. Lord of hosts, we, we acknowledge that we often live in ignorance or at least denial that there's a battle going on and try to pretend it's not happening or we acknowledge that we do so often forget who the real enemy is, that we turn on one another 
forgetting that there are powers and principalities of darkness that are seeking to divide us and splinter us and fracture our relationships and hurt one another, hurt ourselves. Lord God, we confess our need for you, Lord of hosts, to deliver us. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have our true champion, the one who overcomes the world, the flesh, the devil, and even death itself. Lord, may we have hold on to him in trust. May he deliver us. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.